Good morning, church. Good to see you in this almost new year. Praise God for his faithfulness. As you know, our text this morning is out of Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. So let's pray and then I'll begin. Father, we just thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that you extend to us so freely, undeservedly. And all we ask, Lord, is that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your implanted word, that it would take root, that it would sit out what you've already desired for it to accomplish, and that you would be glorified in all. Remove any distractions, God, that desires to pluck your word out, scorch it out, choke it out, uh, but that we would produce the right harvest for your kingdom's sake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's a lovely task to have this morning. Uh, 41 years ago on, on this day, and then as we are preaching through the new birth, um, I was born 41 years ago today. And, now, yeah, y'all messing me up now. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, but thank you. <clears throat> yeah, today I, I was born 41 years ago, and so I can imagine that when I came out as this little infant, as cute as I was and <laughs> handsome as I was, full head of hair at the time coming out of my mother's womb, they probably thought this baby could do no wrong. As cute as he is, ah, we love him. I mean, I was their, their baby boy. But I think over some time, they quite realized pretty quickly, this baby is sinful. It's, it's, this child is wicked. Learn how to lie, learn how to cheat, learn how to steal, learn how to talk back, learn how to disobey my parents and everybody else. They probably wonder, man, where did he get this from? It's not what we taught him. But y'all know how it is. Born into sin, shaping iniquity. Sin is inherently in all of us. We are naturally, as this text that we're about to dig into, we are as alive as we are, we are very much dead. And then another story came to mind that I had a cousin years ago, years ago, involved in a very tragic car accident walking across the street and was hit by a uh, drunk driver. My cousin was, you know, kind of in the streets anyways, but almost lost his life. I remember all of us going up there to Ohio to see him, and I mean, he was in a coma and all of that stuff. Looked horrible, we're praying for him. Long story short, God uh, saved his life, kept him. And all we could think and hope for was that he would change his life around. We were hoping that that dramatic incident would cause a change. It's like, if God spared you from such a dramatic incident and accident, he left you here, that maybe that that is a very, very clear and direct sign that I need to do something different. And not just different, Live for him. Being quite aware that you've had all these saints, all of these Christians praying for you, praying to the Lord, 
well, then maybe the Lord has something in store for me. But he didn't. But he didn't. And so one would think that if an individual had that dramatic near-death experience, that they had been revived, they would do things differently after having been saved. But there is no greater contrast in human experience than that life and death. And so we were all, as I've said earlier already, that we were all dead, beloved. We were all lifeless. We were all at one point deceased for those of us who are believers. Because we lived a life devoid of Christ. Every intention, every thought, every word, every action was motivated by the things of this world. No matter how good and pure you thought that you were and are, it was straight up evil. We were all dead, lifeless, deceased because we lived a life devoid of Christ. See, Isaiah 64, 6 talks about that even our most righteous deeds are yet but filthy rags. Our best works are polluted. The reason is that we live in a world governed by the prince and the power of the air, Satan. This is his playground. This is where he works. This is where he dwells. Every single thing that we do will be polluted. And so I want to talk about what we need or needed, which the title of this text is the Immaculate Resuscitation. Because we needed to be revived. And some of us need to be revived from this deadness, from this hardness, from this Satan's playground. And so in the beginning of chapter 2 is one of the most pivotal portions of Scripture. It deals with the question of our sinful nature and our human corruption. See, these verses, uh, they focus on how Christ's superiority over everything enables man to free, <clears throat> enables him to free the Ephesians first, but also us, but also us from the bondage of sin. This text puts us under the microscope and it illuminates our total dependence upon God's grace and the Holy Spirit's work in bringing us to spiritual life. See, the, the power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him is also the power that took them out of the state of spiritual death and gave them a new life and a new dignity with Christ. Let me read the text for us and then we'll dig into it. Verse 1 in Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, yes, there is that conjunction right there. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. As Pastor Ove said earlier, this text can preach itself. Remember one pastor said, you don't need to add nothing to it. The text makes its own gravy. Oh, yeah. And so I want to talk to us this morning out of four categories. One, a great chasm. A great chasm in one through three. A great chasm. Secondly, great love. A great love. <clears throat> Thirdly, great grace. Great grace. And then lastly, great work. Great work. Great chasm. Great love. Great grace. Great work. Great work. And so we were all once spiritually dead, the text says, and separated from God, and we were all objects of wrath. All objects of wrath. That's why we have such a great chasm, this great gap between us and God. See, Paul begins at the lowest place, the lowest place, which is our spiritual death. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, he doesn't mean that uh, they, the Ephesians, were merely in danger of death, but they were in a state of real and present death. Hmm. He says, death here is not a figure of speech, beloved. It's very much real. See, Paul means that they were absolutely dead. Not only that, but Paul speaks of Gentiles in verse 1. He includes his fellow Jews in verse 3. The state of spiritual death is universal. Everybody was dead. Not just them. No. See, he's not describing some sort of corrupt, drugged-out segment of society. No. He's talking about all of humanity from top to the bottom. He says all people are dead apart from Christ. The bottom line here is that when Paul says dead, he means it to have this absolute application with no exceptions. He's making it very clear. Everybody's included. Everybody's here. See, the fact is, dead people can't do anything. And that is what Paul is talking about to us. See, the spiritual state of those apart from Christ is what he's talking about. How can this be, some may wonder, when so many around us seem to be so much alive? Yeah, I'm walking. You're dressing well. You're talking. You're thinking. You've excelled intellectually. You have academic credentials. You seem alive. Huh. Well, what does that mean? Well... People have these things. They're brimming with all types of personality. But the answer is this. In the area which matters most, which is the soul, the soul, they have no life. <laughs> we had no life. You may not have recognized it at the point, but you were dead. 
See, they are blind to Christ's reality. They are blind to his demands. They are blind to his glory. And they do not love him. Amen. So when you hear people talking about they love God, who are unbelievers, that is not true. They don't know him. Amen. They don't live for him. See, those without Christ are in a permanent state of death. See, and for some, this is a very tough truth to accept. If you ever had conversations with unbelievers, it's a very tough truth. It's very rough. I can imagine some of the pushback you get, Brother Joe, when you're trying to uh, evangelize to these individuals. So much pushback. They don't believe it. Well, how can a, a good God be so wrong? How can such a good God allow so much evil to happen, to allow death to happen? And I understand that to one degree or another. There was a story that I got word of yesterday about a pastor and his wife being shot out in Las Vegas. He passed away. His wife is still living currently. But you wonder, you're like, what in the world? Even individuals who serve the Lord are subject to the, to the actions of evil. And you wonder why he allows that stuff to happen. Individuals come into churches and shoot them up. And you will question God's faithfulness. And you will ask why. So I understand the questions. And it's all right to ask the questions. But you don't question God. You don't question his faithfulness. Hmm. And I almost lost my place. But they are blind to Christ's reality because they're in a permanent state of death. And for some, it is a very untrustworthy and it's a tough truth and rough truth to accept. And they'll even try to counter it. But Paul, as always, as he does throughout all of his letters, he always doubles down. In case you didn't get it the first time, let me double this thing down and explain it to you. Let me make it clear. In verses 2 to 3, he proves his thesis. See, first he says that they were dead because they followed the ways of the world, they followed the ways of the devil, and they followed the ways of the flesh. Well, what does this world mean? The following the ways of the world. The world, those without Christ, are captive to the social and value systems of the present evil age. Yeah, which is hostile to Christ. See, they are willing slaves, willing slaves to the pop culture of the media. You're slaves to groupthink, slaves to talk shows and post-Christian habits and customs and traditions. Man-centered religious fads. The world dominates the spiritually dead. We've all been subject to it. We've all been influenced by it. Just look at yourselves. What we're wearing now is influenced by the world. What we're driving, how we think, has been influenced by the world. It's been polluted by the world. Paul is trying to make this thing all inclusive. He's like, let me make it clear for you. Yes, the world dominates the spiritually dead. And the thing is, once you are made alive in Christ, it is kind of tough to filter it out, ain't it? Sanctification, brother. And we're going to get to it. Yes, indeed. Because they're all on this process of sanctification. Ah, man. To try and push it out. Push it out. Filter it out. Get all the impurities out. Oh, my goodness, it's tough. But because we've been so indwelled by this thing. Mm. 
He said, not only that you've been influenced by the world, but you've also been swayed by the devil. Satan is described as the prince of this world, according to John 12. Not only the prince of this world, the prince of demons and the God of this age. That's very clear right there. We've been swayed by Satan. This is his playground. He's everywhere. Not only the world, not only the not only Satan, but he says the flesh. And so as, as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, he commands innumerable hosts in the unseen world. Thus, he creates a spirit of the age. He creates this diabolical universe in which he knits just enough good with evil to achieve all of his purposes through us. See, the devil dominates and energizes the spiritually dead. You ever wonder why you did certain things that you did? Ask yourself, man, why did I do that? What was I thinking? Why do they? Yeah. The prince of the air. Yeah, Satan. See, the devil dominates all of it. See, take, for example, a, <laughs> a kid who their parents discipline for kicking their little brother and then taking his toy. And the parent asked the kid, why did you allow Satan to, or the devil to make you do that? And the child responds, yeah, uh, the devil made me kick him, but I made the decision to take the toy. What does that say? Well, what I'm trying to say is people sin under Satan's influence. But they also sin on their own. Amen. Amen. Yeah. We also make the decision to sin on our own where Satan isn't even an influence. We take it upon ourselves. See, this is also why he says he calls them children of disobedience. Children of disobedience are actually quite obedient. They are not obedient to God. They're just obedient to Satan. See, the dead, those without Christ, are dominated by the world. They're dominated by the devil. They're dominated by the flesh. The world dominates from without. The flesh dominates from within. And Satan, he is just beyond. He's everywhere. See, the, 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 the devil, the flesh, is crazy, and it's tough. See, this is not a biological state, what I'm talking about. This is a very much spiritual state. See, we... We, when we come into this world, as I said, as being born, we are biologically alive. See, we have minds that function, hearts that beat, wills that choose. We have affections, we have emotions, all the rest. The problem is that even though we have the power to choose, we are dead to the things of God and as a result have no desire for the things of God. See, instead, we follow a different course, which is the course of the world that he talks about. See, we follow it willfully. We follow it freely in the sense of doing what we want. Because the dead only choose the things of the dead. That's why we have to force ourselves to sort of eat healthy. We don't naturally desire the healthy things that are good for the body. It's a sacrifice to eat healthy. It's a discipline to eat healthy and to take care of the body. You ever wonder why it's such difficulty to take care of yourself? To not have the desire to take care of yourself? 
and why we need more discipline to do the good stuff and not the bad things. Mm. And then Paul includes, again, the rest of us. He says, and we were just like you at one point. Your former spiritual condition wasn't peculiar to you, Ephesians. It was the condition of all of us. No one is or was exempt. He says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Everyone, Jews, Gentiles, were and are sinners by nature. They all sin in and with Adam and are therefore guilty according to Romans. Objects of God's settled wrath. See, as John the Baptist said, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. See, the biblical doctrine of depravity means that every part of the human person is tainted by sin. Every part. It does not mean, however, that all humans are equally depraved because most of us aren't as bad as we could be. Nor does it mean that depraved humans are not capable of any good. I think Luke tells us that if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So evil people don't know how to do good. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't mean that there is no dignity in man because the certainty, because there certainly is. See, we were all imperfect bearers of God's divine image. All imperfect. See, rather the meaning is this is that no part of the human being, mind, emotions, heart, will, is unaffected by the fall. It means that sin has such a hold upon us in our natural state that we never have a positive desire for Christ. See, that's total depravity right there. See, as grim, dark, ugly, empty of a picture that the apostle paints of man's fallenness, that we are totally depraved, well, we just read it. He doesn't end right there, the chapter. He doesn't just close the book on that. You're dead, you're fallen, and that's it. He doesn't close the book. Instead, he introduces us to the great conjunction, but, which we get very excited about this but because if there was no but, we would definitely be dead in our sins. But because of God's Rich mercy, and I'm paraphrasing, in his great love. He has provided salvation for us through grace, through faith, not through our good works so that we cannot claim his credit alone. And so we have the great castle, but now we get to the great love in four through five. If mercy is God's attitude towards sinful man, then love is his motive in all that he does with man. See, with this great love, God loved us when he chose us. And because of that love, he acts with us as he does. See, this is the uh, thematic verse in the passage of the gospel right here. See, the grace that brings us life comes to us when we are dead in sin and trespasses. See, it is, the, it is an act of God. Think of it in these terms. If you are a Christian, ask yourself, why are you a Christian? It is because you are better than others? Did you work harder than others? 
do you deserve it more than the other person? Is it because you're more intelligent? And if that is the reason, <laughs> you certainly have something to boast about. But the New Testament teaches that you have nothing, absolutely nothing to boast about. We were all debtors who couldn't pay our debts. And you were dead in your sin and your trespass. And it was God who revived you from the spiritual death. You could do no more of saving yourself than Lazarus could have raised himself from the tomb. None of us could do any of this. See, and so against all of this bleak backdrop of hopelessness for non-Christians, God's mercy restrains his wrath. See, he refrains from punishing us even though we are sinners. Why? Because his mercy flows from out of his great love for us. He desires to do good. For those who he loves, he does not desire to do evil. And as a result, he has done three things for us. These three things is what? He has made us alive in Christ. He has raised us up with Christ. And he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Well, what is this uh, great love moving us to be made alive with Christ? Well, first, he made us alive with Christ. That means our sins had made us spiritually dead. They separated us from God. The resurrected Christ overcame death. God let us share in Christ's life. In doing so, he caused us no longer to be spiritually alienated from him. Why give us life when we deserve death? Because we earned it? No. We deserve the death we got. We are alive because of God's grace, which I'll explain more in verses 8. But grace is defined simply as unmerited favor or undeserved benefits. This is why Christians should never look at non-Christians with a spiritual contempt. Yeah, because uh, as this phrase goes, but for the grace of God go there I. See, we have nothing to boast about. We are redeemed not because of merit or good works, but by grace and grace alone. Amen. So he made us alive with Christ. Not only that, secondly, he raised us up with Christ. Life in Christ came because we experienced Christ's resurrection in the spiritual realm. See, we, are, we were raised from our sinful death and allowed new life. Still, while facing life on earth where Satan reigns, we live with Christ as part of his kingdom. See, nothing in principle stands between them, us, and union with God. See, God has given them and us nothing less than what God gave Christ. See, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not only that, thirdly, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. See, he has made possible and certain our resurrection from the dead and has positioned us in heaven where Christ dwells. See, to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies is a figure of speech. 
uh, meaning God because of Christ's blood that covers us, considers us worthy. He considers, considers us uh, destined to be seated with Christ in heaven. See, the significance of being seated with Christ is much the same as being at a banquet table with some important people. See, it's a privilege. Uh, it's an honor to mark you as one of significance. See, we, were, we will be significant in heaven. And why? <laughs> How will we be? Because we will share with Christ in his rule as king. We will be seated on the thrones according to Revelation. See, in, in, in fact, we already exercise that power. We already exercise power with Christ over the powers of this age. See, we can live life reflect, reflecting Christ's kingdom and not Satan's. We are no longer dead in trespasses and sin. That's why. See, we are alive in Christ, sharing his power, sharing his authority, representing him in the battle with Satan where victory is assured through the resurrection. And then in verse 7, he says this. <clears throat> so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There was a story of a Roman matriarch. Uh, she was once asked, where are your jewels? Where are your jewels? She responded by calling over her two sons and said, those are my jewels right there. These two boys of mine are my jewels. So it is with Christ and his church. He points to us and says, these are my jewels. These is what I put out and reflect are my immeasurable riches. You, us, he points to us, and he will show the all-surpassing riches of his grace, of his children, to his children, through the limitless future from age to age. <laughs> he will show his grace and kindness before his return, he will show it at his return, and he will sure enough show it after his return in all of the ages. And then we come to the other point of great grace. Great chasm, great love, and great grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your work, so that no one may boast. This is the gospel. Let me point that out. This is the gospel. The most precise summary of salvation in Scripture is right here. This is a text that the Holy Spirit often uses to bring life to those who do not believe. To bring life to those without Christ. All who have not been saved, or if you're in here and you're unsure of your status, uh, I think you would do well to pay attention to these words as I explain them. Because the question is, how was one saved? First, it's not by your works. It's not by your works. So that no one can boast. It is essential to understand and believe this if one is to be saved. 
You cannot save yourself. See, salvation does not come by works. To accept the Bible's teaching that salvation is not by works means to go against the notions of this culture, which emphasizes pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's the mentality. It says, like in Invictus, that you are the uh, captain of your fate and your soul. You are not. So just keep on keeping on, right, is what they say. You'll be all right. Uh, you might hear, I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but uh, there are a whole lot of people worse than I. Mm-mm-mm. God knows that I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best. We've all said that. We've all heard that. But you can't do anything about that. See, that's not the language of salvation right there. It's not. See, the text gives us one reason salvation is not by works. What? So that no one can boast. See, if salvation came by works, eternity would produce this fraternity of chest-thumping individuals saying that, whoa, look at me, look at me, look at me, look what I did. Yeah, an endless line of heavenly Pharisees. See, God, y'all, y'all remember this text in uh, Matthew 25? God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of them, robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Yes, that's who would be in heaven. But in Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, he says, the goats on the left do all the boasting, but the ones on the right uh, do not, the sheep. See, because they can't even recall their good deeds. They're not even thinking about what they did. Oh, I did this? Oh, when were you in prison? When did, when did we serve you, God? Oh, they ain't even thinking about what the boast in. They're just like the leaders and the kings in Revelation casting their crowns at the feet. We have nothing to boast in. Absolutely nothing. No work. So no one will have grounds to boast before God or even want to boast before God. And so, if not by works, then how are we saved, J.D.? By grace, you are saved. Grace is something we receive, not because we earn it, but because out of God's benevolence, he gives it to us as a gift. Merit, on the other hand, is a reward that is owed to someone for fulfilling the terms of a contract or some legal agreement. God doesn't owe us anything. Nor can you fulfill any contract. We couldn't. That's why Christ came. But our text, our text is great and exceeding emphasis is that grace is a free gift. The idea of, and this is not from yourselves, is that by God's grace, you are people who have been saved through faith. And this whole event and experience is God's gift to you. This right here is God's gift to you. That you are fellowshipping with believers. That you are sitting under the preached word. Sitting under biblical prayers. Becoming baptized. Having discipleship. Experiencing evangelism. Being involved in all of this is God's free gift to you. That you are hearing the gospel day in and day out. That's his gift. There's a story of a judge who had given this sentence to a criminal. And then years later, they were actually sitting beside each other at some event. 
didn't recognize or didn't um, say anything to each other or anything like that. But after the event, the judge walked out and one of his friends was walking with him in the hallway and said, hey, did you recognize the man that was beside you, that he was that criminal that you sentenced to like 20 years? Isn't it amazing what he's done with his life now because he, was, he had become a pastor? And the judge was quiet and he said, hmm, God's grace is amazing. His unmerited favor is awesome. It is amazing. And the guy said, yeah, God's done a lot of work on that guy. And the judge said, no, I was talking about me. <laughs> he says, when you're at your lowest point, the judge says, when you're at your lowest point, when your back's against the wall, God is all that he puts you on your back to where he is all that you need to can ask for. He says, but for me, man, I came up in the, with, with money and in uh, affluence. I had the degrees, all of this stuff, and I didn't recognize God. And I had to get to the point to where I had to become humble. I had to become meek. I had to recognize that I was spiritually bankrupt to accept God. And so it's more of a miracle for me to be saved than that criminal. Mm. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We all have to get to the point where we are recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we have absolutely nothing to boast in and recognize that it is all of grace that we can be a part of the kingdom of God. No matter your status, no matter your class, no matter your color or creed, all need grace. Just like that judge and that's that criminal. Hmm. Men and women must be poor in spirit and meek enough to receive his grace, to admit that they cannot save themselves or earn their own admittance into heaven. They must also listen to Paul's other point. Paul's other point, his third point, that salvation comes through faith. See, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. See, if there is no faith, there is no grace. And where there is no grace, there is no salvation. See, in Scripture, faith, belief is the thing that God honors more than, than any single quality. See, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, says it in Acts. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He says it in John. He says, through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. You can't be justified by the law, <laughs> but you must be justified by grace, by God. And he says to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, no one has sins forgiven. No one goes to heaven. No one has peace until there is faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. I can't repeat that enough. Until there is faith in Jesus Christ, beloved. Well, what then is faith? Oh, man. The questions go on and on. And it's good that we ask these questions. See, faith is, is not the mere intellectual reception of Christian truth or belief. Oftentimes, we get caught up in knowing, knowing, 
knowing, being able to spout off this and that, knowing all the arguments, uh, gaining more and more intellectual uh, and knowledge about the Bible and the scripture and theology, Christology, all of the doctrines, but yet you're still far from God. It's not about just giving the right answer. Okay, it's not about just knowing the hermeneutics and homiletics and all of that stuff. No, you got to know God. You have to know Jesus. And so truth, true faith is belief plus trust. Belief plus trust. Here's another illustration. My mom actually shared this with me uh, last week. There's often this story that preachers will tell about a former circus uh, uh, rope, whatever you call them, rope, walker, tightrope walker, whatever you want to call him. He walks a tightrope. And so this man, um, I believe his name was Bloden, Bloden, something like that, would walk across this tightrope, and he did it over the Niagara Falls. And so he would carry these various objects across the tightrope over Niagara Falls, different instruments, different objects. He even had one of his assistants in a wheelbarrow going across the tightrope over Niagara Falls. Everybody sees him doing this, okay? It's amazing. It's interesting. It's very scary, but he does it. And so he looks up to the crowd, Blodden, and says, hey, do y'all believe that I can carry one of you across this tightrope? They say, yeah. He says, all right, you come down here and let me carry you. He says, no. I thought you trust him. He says, I do trust you, but not with my life. Same thing with Christ. You believe him, right? You've heard all the good things. You've heard the stories. You know that he can do what he's claimed that he can do. But will you trust your life with him completely to carry you? Have you given yourself up to him completely? Do you trust him to carry you across the tightrope of life? Because we can't. Have you entrusted yourself to him? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do we believe he died for our sins? Do we believe he was resurrected and lives today? Have we trusted him to save us? The only way to go from death to the highest of heavens of spiritual life is to be carried by Jesus. For this to happen, there are some things we must understand and believe. This is the gospel in a nutshell. First, salvation is not by works. Do we believe that the Bible, what the Bible says is true? Do we see that our best will, that our best will never get us there because we are fundamentally sinful and God is fundamentally righteous? Do we see that our works are nothing more than rearranging chairs in a sinking ship? Second, we must see and believe that salvation is only by grace, a completely free gift. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own. This is the gift of God. See, you must understand and believe that we cannot mix works and grace concerning eternal salvation. Third, you must know that salvation is through faith and must trust him alone for your salvation and not you or, or, or anything else. Have you stepped out onto Jesus and received that gift of eternal life? Can you trust them now? The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus.
and you will be saved. And then lastly, we have this great work. We have this great work in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does it mean to be God's workmanship? It means that we are God's work of art. We're his masterpiece. God is the creator. Nothing exists apart from him. He brought everything into being. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The galaxies, the stars, all of the solar system are his handiwork. Yet, as wonderful as the cosmos is, it is not his masterwork. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the world's creation in the things that have been made. Nature radiates his glory. Think of the most beautiful thing you can think of. The most beautiful person, object, whatever it is. This architecture, these vehicles, the landmass, the expansive ocean, the sunsets, the Grand Canyon, none of it is his ultimate artistry. Why? Because you are. We are. We are his, his masterwork. You are his most precious and delicate work. So God created man in his own image. He says that right off the bat in Genesis. His most wonderful image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. See, you don't have a body but an eternal soul. It's not just a body, but you have a soul. See, St. Augustine said it like this. He says, Men go away to wonder at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of rivers, at the vast compass of the seasons, at the secular motions of stars. And yet they pass by themselves without even wondering. We pass by each other forgetting that we've been made and created in the image of God. That we are his ultimate workmanship. We look at everything else, but we pass each other up, don't we? Man is, without a doubt, the apex of God's creation. See, no angel can rival us. No angel is made in the image of God. Yet, as wondrous as man is, he is not the masterwork spoken of in this text. As God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, man is not. The ultimate workmanship of God is a human who has been made alive in Christ Jesus. See, there, is, there are these two creations of Christ. His very existence, man, is due to the work of Christ. See, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, our powers, our rulers, our authorities, all things were created by him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, right? That's in Colossians 1. Every human is created and healed together by Christ. But then the masterwork undergoes a second creation. 
a new birth in Christ Jesus. Christ, Lord of creation. See, is, he is also the executor of salvation. See, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Y'all know the text. See, the old has gone and the new has come. God's most spectacular creation is man-made alive. Because the second work is greater than the first, just as the second Adam is greater than the first Adam. Some of us have had things happen which make us doubt our worth in Christ. But we must remember that we are his workmanship. That we are his work of art. Also, we must remember that you're not perfect, but you are in the process of being made perfect. See, the process of sanctification. See, we are constantly made more and more like Christ day by day. See, and we will not arrive at perfection until that day that we are called up to glory. And see, the late great pastor and preacher, uh, Gardner C. Taylor once used this Michelangelo analogy. He said, uh, the Italian sculptor was asked one day what he was doing as he chipped away at a shapeless rock. He replied, he says, I am liberating an angel from this stone. <laughs> See, that's what God is doing with us. <laughs> We're not perfect. He's sculpting away at us every single day. Woo, man. Boy, if we had an organ in this thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's sculpting us away he is molding us and shaping us more into the image of his son he is liberating and has liberated us from all of this tragedy sin death and decay and has made us alive in Christ Jesus we ought to praise him for that that is what God is doing. See, we are in the hands of the great maker, the ultimate sculptor who created the universe out of nothing, ex nihilo. And he has never yet thrown away a rock on which he has begun a masterwork. He has not thrown you away yet because you're still here. He's still working on you. His tools are Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, his word and the preaching of the word. God often uses difficult circumstances. He may use difficult people to help sculpt our character and refine our image as his sons and daughters. God is using Miss Ava Johnson's condition to refine her and her family. God is using Miss Karen's circumstances to refine her and build her and her family. God is using the outage situation to sculpt them and their loved ones as well, refining us. For like Job, he said this. He says, the Lord has tested me. He has tried me. And I shall come forth as pure gold. He's trying all of us. He tests all of us. We will be remade, remade, and remade, refined, and refined, resculpted, and resculpted, coming out as pure gold. And so what does being his masterwork require of us? Well, once we are saved and become his workmanship, well, then we must work. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works are a sign that we are his workmanship. It's a sign that we are his. Authentic believers, those made by 
God's hands work for him. This truth is echoed all throughout the New Testament prayers repeatedly and repeatedly. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself encourage our hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And we pray that in order that you may uh, live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, each of us has an eternally designed job description, which includes the task, the ability, and the place to serve. Don't spend so much time worrying about figuring out your calling. I've had former students and Young man asked me, I'm trying to figure out my calling. What's God called me to? I'm trying to figure this thing out. Don't worry about it. What he has called you to do, where and with whom, he'll place you there. All you got to do, beloved, you be faithful and disciplined in learning and meditating on his word, following his word, and distributing his word in your mouth and your life. And by the time you look up, you'll be exactly where he wants you to be. Exactly where he wants you to be. Some of y'all want to be in Jerusalem, but you're more effective and will give him more glory in Babylon. I thought I was cool in Kentucky, but the Lord obviously placed me in D.C. And in doing the works he has called you to do, you will be both more and more his workmanship and more and more your true self. Your true self. You don't have to be like the things of the world. You don't have to try to recreate your image when you go to college or on social media. Be who you truly are in Christ Jesus by following him. And so why is this an immaculate resuscitation? Because immaculate is perfect. Immaculate is pure. It's spotless. And to resuscitate is to revive, to bring back to life from this apparent death, restoring this life. And we needed a spotless, untainted, holy Lamb of God, Jesus, Amen. <laughs> to raise us up from the grave of death. To live with him so that we may become righteous like him so that we can one day be seated with him in glory. And he made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so what is the point of all of this, beloved? All of us are God's workmanship. And as such, we have been given good works to do which were appointed before our very existence. And when we do them, he gives us the necessary power and an amazing sense of the Holy Spirit that undergirds us. And there was nothing more beautiful than workmanship working for God. The question is, are we working? We've We've been made new creatures. We've been given a new birth. And we got new work to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy.
that you gave to us freely, undeserved. And we thank you more importantly, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, who because of his unblemished, unspotted, untainted self was able to save us from an eternal hell so that we can live with you, Father. And I pray that we will be mindful of that day in and day out, knowing that your Holy Spirit has given us all that we need for life and godliness and that we would work for you and despise doing work for Satan. Keep us in your will, Father, and save somebody who doesn't know you this very morning. That's what we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.